Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 83. As always, my name is Mark. Here with me today is Amber. Hi, everyone. And we are here to talk about pain in board gaming. At least that was the title that Amber gave it. This was Amber's idea. Therefore, you can blame her for everything that follows. It's not a fully developed idea, I have to admit. It just came to me one day and I said we should podcast about it. Yes, uh, but none of our ideas have ever been fully developed, so that's kind of how the podcast works. Okay, but this one is particularly vague. That's all right. Uh, So I think the topic is very interesting because we think of games as something that is fun and we think of pain as something that is not fun. However, board games are... In, in all games, well, not all games, most games, I forget the term for this type of game, but the, when we think about when we're talking about board games or this type of game, we think about a defining characteristic being rules to the game. And those rules limit what you can and cannot do, which is some kind of restriction. And typically we don't react well to restrictions. Uh, so getting from there to the idea that games might cause frustration or pain or something along those lines. I don't know what the right word is. I've used in the past frustration, I think, as a positive thing for a game. I've used, maybe I've referenced like angst. And I'm trying to think tension is a word I've used in a positive way in gaming. Pain is your nomenclature. Yes, it's mine. I feel actual pain. This is my word for it. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about this idea that we have defined in with, with all of these words as pain for lack of a better term. Sure. So Amber, let's start with you describing what you mean by this or, or rather give me the impetus for this topic. How did you arrive at this idea? So we were playing clinic the other day which is a heavy euro game about you know building your own hospital and running it and making money Um, so very thematic i think for the topic of pain and maybe why the reason i uh, landed on that particular word but immediately when the game was introduced the, the first thing that was said was you have eight actions this whole game. I think it's, it was eight, right? Eight, eight. rounds or six rounds. Uh, Actually, I thought, it, I thought it went to 18 mm, for some reason. A very low number of actions. So that's not a low number. 18 is, is a pretty average number. We can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do want to talk about that. Okay. Uh, immediately, you only have this many actions. And to me, it just felt like a very, very low number. Like, I'm not actually going to get to do anything in this game. When you have a really low number of actions, every one of them is painful in a sense because it is bringing you closer to the inevitable end of the game. Which, in my mind, you know, the the game is its own world outside of the real world. But when you end a game, it almost feels like it's a finish. Almost like it's the end of a life or... Or, or the end of an experience, or something. And so, when you say you only have a certain number of actions, and then that world essentially ends, you want to get as much enjoyment out of that time as possible. And if the game is structured to where 
all of those actions seem very slow or are moving you only in a direction where you do not feel like you are enjoying life or making the money that you want to make or getting to do the fun actions that you want to do. Each action feels a little bit painful. Um, And then it, it almost feels like it's bringing you to this inevitable end where at the end you will have experienced more pain than actual enjoyment. So that's kind of the idea behind this. Um, I think a lot of Euro games are like this. I go back and forth on whether or not I even like these kinds of games. I would say my first introduction was Agricola, which we should definitely talk about you know, in this podcast. Um, but I've played several games over the years that I like. I actually enjoyed my clinic experience. But there are definitely a lot of games that I don't like because of this. Name experience. some of those. I'm curious what those games are. Uh, well, definitely Agricola. Oh, you don't like Agricola? I thought you, for some reason, you do. No, Mark, I hate that game. <laughs> I thought you were on my side. I thought you were no. one of, an ally. No, no, I have never been your ally. This is the reason I do not own Agricola, because I would never find anyone to play it with. I'm trying to think of other games you haven't enjoyed. There aren't many you really dislike. There's a lot of games you think are okay. There are a lot of games with this mechanism where I feel that I will dislike them, but by the end of the game, there is some satisfaction. Agricola is just one of those games where I feel there is no satisfaction at all at the end of the game. There are a couple different ways we're going to go with this. So I want to preview it. I do want to talk about the perception of game length and the number of turns. Yeah. Because I, I I know for a fact, because I have been wrong about this a lot, and I've looked into it a lot, I know for a fact that people often think that games have more turns than they do. Yeah. The other thing, well, so let's talk about that first. The other thing I want to talk about is... Your description of this is extremely existentialist. I know, I know. It's rare for me. <laughs> and I want to dig into that a bit more. Okay. But let's talk about the turns in a game, So, or the number of actions in a game. So Clinic, if I remember correctly, had 18 total actions over six rounds. Let's, let, me, let me give you a quiz here. A quiz? <laughs> You've played a lot of Dominion. Yes, I have. How many turns do you think a typical Dominion game is? Interesting. 25? I'm just guessing a round number. If a Dominion game went 25 turns long, it would either be with bad players <laughs> or an incredibly grindy setup. How much is the The average? big money strategy, mm-hmm. so like the baseline strategy in mm-hmm. Dominion, you only buy money and then provinces, mm-hmm. which is like a baseline, you're trying to beat that. That gets its fourth in a two-player game or... A, yeah, in any number of player game, that will, on average, and I could be off by one or two, get its fourth province, which is kind of like what your you know fourth will, in theory, tie you for first because mm-hmm. there's four provinces in the game per person. That'll get you your fourth province, which should be cl- like within a turn or two at the end of the game. I believe on turn seventeen or eighteen. Oh wow. If you have a very, if you have a generous kingdom setup, mm-hmm. games can go as little as like 12 or 13 turns. Typically, they're shy of 20. Wow. I did not realize this. Let me give you a different one. How many turns do you think a game of Through the Ages is? 
I really haven't played very much through the ages. I, I don't know if that's a good one. Do you remember playing through the ages? Yeah, vaguely. I don't think there's actually very many turns in that game, though, from what I remember. Aren't there okay. only a few turns per age or something? Okay, you don't remember it very well. Yeah. I thought through the ages went like 30 to 35 turns. It goes like 22 turns. Okay. On games that don't have a set number of turns, you almost exclusively have fewer turns than you think you do. Unless it's spelled out for you. And I remember reading a game designer discussion where they recommended for a medium to heavy euro, one that will take 90, you know, an hour and a half to two and a half hours, 18 turns was the recommendation. Wow. Uh, Because if you do the math, right, so you got 18 turns times four for a four-player game, that's 72 total turns. Uh, so if you're at, if you're shooting for a 90 minute game, your turns have to be less or have to be on average slightly more than a minute, yeah. which is pretty quick it in the is. grand scheme of things because there's lots of bleed over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you do the math that way, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, but some games just feel more generous with the action turns, yes. which is, which I think is super interesting. And some th- games feel very restricted. And I'm curious about what creates that. So Agricola is a game that you say has this pain. Yes. Is it because of limited actions? I don't think it's because of the number of actions. Although I, th- I think that, that the, the fact that it has such limited actions is something that game players will recognize immediately. Um, so the fact that it has such few actions is definitely something that I focus on when I think about how much I dislike the game, but I don't, I don't ultimately think that that's the reason that I think it's so painful. Honestly, though, I think Agricola has a large number of actions. Really? How many rounds does it go? You can't do anything in that game. That's the thing, right? That's what I want to talk about. (laughs) It's not the number of actions in that case. It's it's the fact that you're doing four or five different things. You can build fences. You can get animals. Yeah, and... there are 14 rounds in Agricola, and you start with two workers. You end up with usually three or four. Okay. So you're looking at, at a minimum of 28 actions. Okay. It sure doesn't feel that way. Yeah, that's the crazy <laughs> thing, right? So... I'm curious, what do you think are things that people, designers could do to manipulate this? I think, is it just like the perception of wealth or not wealth? See, that's one thing that I think could factor. In Agricola, you are basically a subsistence farmer, right? And you're, you want to get animals and you want to build fences and that's it. And if you can't successfully do that, what is your life? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whereas other games like Clinic, there seems to be, there seem to be more choices. I don't know that there actually are, but it's just a more sophisticated setting with money involved. Um, and, And, you know, you have this idea that hospitals or profit centers, um, and so part of it feels more fun 
like like you're actually building up tons of cash in comparison to other players and can flaunt it a bit in agricola there's no flaunting anything yeah and i think that the amount of cash may be significant like clinic yeah it feels tight but not as tight as agricola and -hmm. i think it's often because in agricola you're getting things in quantities of like one two or three often Mm -hmm. and in like clinic you treat like a a a super sick patient you get 32 money you Mm -hmm. get 32 currencies but then again like if you compare i don't know you you haven't played caverna right i think i played it once but it was a while ago i don't really remember it uh so even in caverna that one feels more open and you're still getting stuff well maybe there's a bit more quantity of things that you could get at one time so i think there are just more spots there's not there's not quite as much blocking and it has those spaces where where resources can build up over time caverna though is much softer on the feeding and it allows you to go into your strategy a bit more uh, you can also look at a progression with the same designer into Noosefjord. Same mm. designer as Agricola. In Noosefjord, you get piles of stuff. You're getting, you could you could rake in a turn where you get like eight fish mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of your turn, uh, or you get like five wood at a time. And just by tweaking the numbers a bit, it feels so much more open, yeah. even though it's still a game about economizing. So even though, for instance, an Agricola expensive thing may cost three units and a Noosefjord expensive thing may cost six units of whatever resource, just because of that, even though Noosefjord is more generous with its resources, therefore maybe six units of whatever resource is just as difficult to get in Agricola compared to Agricola's three units, it feels nicer mm-hmm. uh, which which i think is interesting it is yeah and of course it, it, uh designers can play with that as well there's also the consideration that incremental changes in resource amounts uh are different in in a, a real and a psychological sense so the difference between getting one of something and two of something is that you've doubled right the difference between getting two and three is that you've gained 50 percent three and four you've gained 33% etc and, and that keeps diminishing mm-hmm. uh, which I haven't fully explored the implications of that beyond like a psychological sense uh, but but that could play into it I think yeah I think so I think that plays in it's far outside the topic of this podcast I think that plays in more to my philosophies on kingmaking and how you play the game and optimize when you realize you're not winning but I think we should talk about that another time. Wait, how does that play into that? This is a tangent. This is the, the Thoughtful Gamer podcast. We're going to go on tangents. With the incremental stuff? Yeah, well, what do you mean by that? So, if I if I can take an action, and I'm not winning the game, I can take an action and get two points versus one point. It's all the same to me, right? So maybe in that case, I will decide who I want to win the game. But if it's a game where it's more generous and the choice is between me getting 20 victory points versus 35 victory points, even if I'm going to end up last, I probably want the extra 35 victory points. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't think of it that way. <laughs> I well, know. No, I think it, well, I also think it's a matter of sportsmanship in a sense. 
if you're in a losing position, I think there are two legitimate philosophies. Either you try to maximize your score or you try to maximize your rank. And yeah. I think that's those are the only that I can think of the only two kind of fair approaches uh, to avoid king making where you actually like maximize pick X person winning the game, which I think is is unfun and and not really sportsmanlike. So I I get it, but if if the increments are so small, I'd be much more inclined to engage in king making. That's what I'm saying. This is a, this is a hot take. This is controversial, Amber. <laughs> is it? I'm not endorsing yeah. kingmaking. It's not something I do on a regular basis. But, but yeah, faced with that kind of decision, I'm not going to tell you I'm kingmaking. But, but Amber, maybe that's have you been kingmaking this entire time? I'm. I win, Mark. I win. That's true. You do win a lot. I don't kingmake because I don't have to kingmake. You kingmake yourself. <laughs> the the only legitimate type of kingmaking. King taking, as it were. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I think I think the resource scarce, or at least the perceived scarcity of resources, can play into the feeling of action constraint. That, no, uh, even if the cost of things are adjusted to compensate. You know what? This is good, and it actually factors into our conversation. Okay. So, so when you have so few points to work with. Sometimes you want a little bit more agency, and maybe that's why I'm inclined to kingmake. Because the choice to kingmake is better than the choice to get one point. You know? I think this is I do not know. I I deliberately try to avoid these things. I think that you've actually just touched on on the whole whole mindset. But but don't kingmake. Have you kingmade me before? You probably choose someone else. I don't know. It's not like there's one person in our game group that I like and one person I dislike. It, it, it's all very situational, and I don't think I actually engage in kingmaking that much. But I, it is something that I think about regularly. Like, what would I do in this situation? Okay. It, I, I don't think you have to be worried, and I do understand. You know, especially in our game group, it's not appropriate. Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to. Well, it's to... definitely not appropriate in someone else's game group either. Okay, but sometimes it can be subconscious, right? Sure, yeah. Like what I'm talking about. Sometimes that choice, I think, makes you feel better than the choice to get a measly one point. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. So let's pivot now. Let's talk about the existential aspect, uh, because you touched on two kind of ideas of existential existentialism one is uh, the idea of like facing death facing the reality of death and mm-hmm. the other one is grappling with the with the illusion of choice mm-hmm. of of free choice uh so the facing death one is pretty straightforward in their different uh ways you know you, you can get more elaborate in the subtleties but the 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 metaphor of end of game as death uh, i i think holds well, I think it's mm-hmm. easy to conceive of. And if you feel like you haven't, for lack of a better term, lived your game life to its fullest, it can be a, uh, it can be a negative experience. Yes, that is exactly it. Although, in my mind, that's always softened by the possibility of just playing the game again. Uh, but, but it's why shorter games can have more can usually get away with more extreme luck stuff. 
uh, in randomness because if you just get hosed by the randomness, it's you know it's only a twenty minute game. Let's play again and try out something new. Yeah, uh, I, I think that particularly works in like roll for the galaxy if you feel like you got you know just a few key bad rolls or uh, unlucky on the action selection and particularly in the city you played the city right card game by the same designer yeah 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 and in th- that game takes like 10 minutes mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's very much you want to latch onto a strategy and pursue that strategy uh, but but sometimes you just don't get the cards to do that and then you, you just go again uh, but in a long invested game you oftentimes want to have a lot of control yeah uh, and less random randomization or at least the perception of less randomization the idea of like how much of how you can disguise random elements and stuff is, is probably for a different podcast. And I, I think it's something we, I've touched on before. But yeah, I think that metaphor holds holds on pretty well. Yeah, I usually only think about it during a long game. So that's why when I when I said we should do this topic, I was thinking of it in the context of heavy Euro games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not really thinking about the concept of pain when I'm playing our shorter games. Uh, of course, this does remind me that I have a game idea in which the end of the game is actually your character's death. Anyways, continue. A metaphor, yes. A, a proper metaphor, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think this is... It's not necessarily true that a lot of these games have themes where you feel like it's a lifespan. I think Agricola does. But, sure. Um, it, but other games, you know, like Clinic, it's it's basically just you build a hospital and I guess the end of the game would be you sell it or something like that. It's not explicitly stated, uh, but you're really working within a defined time frame. In other games, I don't know, what are some other well, games, games? Games typically either have a shorter or a much longer view of time yeah well, right like, so you have like through the ages which mm-hmm. is hundreds of years you have like tw- even twilight imperium you can imagine is playing out over longer than any human's lifespan yeah. or you can imagine it is much shorter i don't know what it's if it's actually something that is built into the game at all i haven't really thought of that yeah well for those games it's almost the end of an era or it could even feel like the end of a universe or something like that you feel a loss when it ends um it's not there anymore or it's not part of your life or your world anymore um and yeah i think it's really easy to draw a parallel to how when people are living their lives there is this idea that you want to experience life you want to you want to reach the end of your life and and say that you lived a good one. Yeah, yeah, which brings us back to other existentialist ideas. So there's the the idea it's either despair or angst. I get the the terms confused. There's one of the idea that you are bound by your desires and and by a number of other things so that while you sort of have the perception of having free choices, you really don't. And that you want free choices and then you some that's where the existentialists split. Some of them are mm-hmm. like that can never happen. Some of them are like, well, we can we can try to pursue. I think what's I, I, sh- I, I, I should look into this because I'm probably going to be 
prescribing this to the wrong people. I think Sartre talked about radical freedom, uh, which is uh, the idea that we can theoretically pursue this type of extreme, like pure freedom, while other people, maybe Camus would argue that you can't do that. Again, I, I studied this years ago, and I am grasping at the fringes of my memory, although the concepts have remained. Yeah, I don't... The concepts, I think, definitely apply, and it's a, the concepts present the framework for it, but I think in the game world, it's not like the player is looking for unlimited choice. Um, right, right, right. Well, let me continue on. Mm-hmm. And then a conclusion that some people reach is that is trying to get this idea of like pure expression. And that's where you get uh, the beginnings of the idea of art as expression. Art is art because it's like your purest expression of yourself. And games don't let you necessarily express yourself how you want. Right. Or I've, I've seen this in your preferences for games. You prefer games that have, that give you the freedom to, kind of express your preference your strategic yeah. preferences yeah there are games that you do not like because you think you you, the, you feel limited in like i would like to do this thing and i feel like i ought to be able to do this strategy but the game isn't letting me yeah that's definitely true and going back to agricola that's what a lot of people don't like about agricola is that it forces you to have a strategy where you kind of comp- accomplish a little bit of everything and that's the big one of the big changes in Caverna is that it let you specialize mm-hmm. in different strategies. Although I dramatically prefer Agricola. I think Caverna loses all of its teeth and all of its flavor and becomes boring and dull. Uh, but I do like Newsfjord. I don't like Newsfjord, but it's not for this reason. So we don't need to talk about you liked that. It. I thought you liked Newsfjord. No, remember, I never play it. Never want to play it. Why don't you like it? I just, the couple times I played it, I found it annoying, and I don't really know why. So it's probably not a good game to unpack on the podcast. Do you hate fish, Amber? Maybe it's that. Maybe it is. I Maybe don't know. Maybe you hate fish. Maybe you, you you don't like that you can't figure out what the herring deck is. You remember that bit in Newsyard? The, the the single greatest rule book Oh, right. Excerpt. Where, yeah. it's, where it says, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. we recommend for the first game that you use the herring deck, but it doesn't identify which deck is the herring deck, and there's just pictures of fish on the decks, and so you actually have to like know what a herring looks like compared to two other fish that look pretty close to a herring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I, I still laugh when I see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways... Can you think of what are some other games where you you thought you lacked that freedom, not necessarily in time but in strategy? So not answering the question directly, but I like Twilight Imperium because it lets me do the things that I think I should be allowed to do. Do you still consider that your favorite game? Um, yeah, probably of all time. Like I I don't play it very often, so I think you doubt whether or not I actually like it. But that's just me. I'm not gonna gonna play it all the time. Okay. Yeah. What are other games that are like this? Oh, Top Pop. Oh, Top Pop. I sh- it, it's it's a good game. I think it's a good game, but I did not enjoy. Wait, it. Is it Top Pop or Pop Top? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> the boxes. Are- <laughs> oh, it's Top Pop. Yeah. 
this is a prototype I've been playing. It's not released yet. It should be on Kickstarter pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was all right. No, no, it's it's a game where I do a couple of actions and feel pretty good about myself, and then I look around and see how much money everyone—not money, but you know how many resources, tokens yeah. everyone else around the table has—and I'm like, I will never catch up. This game has just has just destroyed me. I, and and I won the first one, and I didn't do too badly on the second one, and. I still felt the entire game like I was just being totally screwed over and that all the other players were richer than me. And this was a fascinating thing because we showed you how you weren't, how you did not have fewer. And logically it made sense, but it did not make sense in my feelings. Yeah, which I don't know why that was. Well, the first time that was the case was because you basically had just cashed in your resources for points. And we hadn't yet cashed in the resources. So you could see the resources that we had dedicated to scoring points. You had more points than us, but... Okay, but the problem is all of you got more tokens back. And I felt like I was doing more with less, which is what you want to do. But that wasn't the case. (laughs) It just looked like that. I know, it looked Uh, like it. it, Which is is valid. It looked like it. (laughs) And felt like it. But did you feel like you were strategically limited there? No. I think there's not really a set of games where I'll never play them because they're not my preferred strategy. It's more like when we sit down to play a game. I'll veto games all the time. Because it's just not the type of game that I want to play. Not the kinds of choices that I feel like making. Sure. And yeah, I think you get a bit frustrated with that. I'm always vetoing veto everything. games all the time too. I just want to point out... That games that are generous, that allow you to actually get money that sits in front of you, or get resources and do many things, they feel more fun um, and more satisfying. Whereas the games where there's very little you can do and you're really stretching your resources make you feel like you're trying to make ends meet um, and not not really living an exciting game life, for lack of a better metaphor. I think it's an illusion in some ways. Well, I mean, logically, objectively, it is an illusion. But I think it matters to the game-playing experience. Um, There's another game we played recently, um, Dune Imperium. Is that the full name of the game? Yeah. And this game, I felt, was really generous. Even though it actually had a really limited number of turns it when it came only, down to it. It had, it had 10... Wait, was it 10 rounds? No, 10... 6 rounds. No, it was 10 rounds. Oh, was it? It was 10 points. 10 points to No, the... it was 10 rounds to the game max, but the game could end sooner. And we okay. ended on round 9. And then you get two actions, two worker actions, and a third kind of pseudo action, mm-hmm. and you could grab a third worker. Mm-hmm. Uh... Which the worker actions, like the worker placement part of the game, felt felt decently generous. Yeah. Uh, to me, the deck building did not, because in a deck builder, ten or like, you know, wanting to turn into like your major point scoring or super powerful cards by like turn seven is pretty quick. Yeah, but I liked the cards because they let you do really cool things. Not my cards. Oh, well, you just got you lucky. got You got much more interesting cards than I did. 
Yeah, but may have been an illusion, but there seemed to be so much more choice in that game with the kinds of actions you could take, the amount of resources you could accumulate, the the fun different kinds of actions you could take and how you could align with all the different factions um, and, and kind of build up your engine. I think the problem is, is it, it felt very generous at first and then halfway through the game, I realized it wasn't actually that generous oh, I because think it, I, I think it was well, but, but you realize the game was ending very quickly um, and you had to kind of limit the fun things you were doing to focus on points, which I think is what you want in the game. But I just, I found it to be a unique experience where the first part was all fun, fun and games and exploration and doing crazy stuff. And then it turned into more of a Euro game kind of thing where you have to optimize every move in order to race Bubba, who was clearly winning. Um, yes. Yeah. But See, that's that was interesting. Very, it was a very generous game, I think. But I think it's also one where it brings in the idea that maybe that is an illusion. Because at the end of it, it wasn't really more actions than clinic. Which felt very constraining. Well, when I when I talk about generous, I'm talking not necessarily about actions, but also resources. Yeah. And I think Dune was it was limited. Pretty generous with its resources. Okay. You had a pile of like I had too much 15 money. Fifteen of this one resource at the end of the game, you didn't know what to do with. Well, I could. That in my mind is generous. Like it's just overflowing with one thing. Yeah. And I don't know if if this idea of generous or not generous is necessarily an illusion. We talked about this before with how a game prices things. So it may be an illusion, for lack of a better term, if you know you get lots of resources but everything's expensive compared to if you get very little resources but everything's cheaper. And if you mathed it out, it would be like the same action cost or the same unit of time cost or, or section of the game, however you'd want to cross-compare those. Uh, in that sense, maybe there's an illusion effect. But I think some games are just make it easier to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and some games make it more of a grind to actually progress your engine. Mm-hmm. Pipeline is a perfect example. But man, like last time I played Pipeline, I finished with negative points. I could not get my engine going. I made a couple of really key errors and... Like, you can win a game of Pipeline with, I think, like $2,000, and I had negative money. Wow. Uh, So, yeah, I I don't know if it's necessarily an illusion, but I think there are things that designers could do to push the illusion if they wanted to one direction or another. That that isn't actually the case when compared on an objective level. Uh, And and it depends on what you want to do with the game. I think both are fun. And I think this is parallel not really parallel to but it runs alongside of the idea of euro games as contrasted with american style games or ameritrash games uh in the early days uh the uh, one of the major ideas was that in euro games you build up something you create and you end up with a bigger thing in or more advanced or more development than you had before whereas in american games uh largely coming from war games 
uh, you destroyed. You destroyed opponent's stuff, and you end up with fewer things than you had before except for the winner. Uh, I think these are two separate concepts because you could have a generous war game where you got lots of troops and you have big battles mm-hmm. and then lots of units dying, or you could have war games where it really feels like every unit is a precious resource. Mm-hmm. But but it's two different ways of looking at games that you can categorize, categorize them by this idea of generous or not generous, uh, which I like better than painful or not painful. True. Although with, they're, they're very similar ideas. Yeah, I mean, I would still play a painful game. It just sometimes makes me irritated. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I might veto on game night a suggestion of that kind of game is if I just don't want to take on the cognitive load. Yeah. Yeah, but also the emotional load. There is an emotional <laughs> load to playing that kind of game. There are some people that will just never play that kind oh, of game. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's just not my experience. I don't I don't really have that emotional load. Sometimes I, I, I veto certain types of games. Like, like I'll say I don't want to play a cooperative game. I want to play a competitive game uh, for more, I guess, emotional reasons. In this kind of situation with, you know, we're talking about painful or non-painful games it's just the cognitive load i want to sometimes i'm in a mood for really grinding out something and sometimes i'm in a mood for a game that will let me make a couple of errors and then i'll just like you know have 50 points instead of 60 points Mm -hmm. Uh, which i guess is another tool that designers can use this idea of a point floor i've talked about before so you think of like castles of burgundy if if like a you know uh, a monkey was playing castles of burgundy and you like kind of just force them or like a baby, right? Someone who doesn't understand the rules of the game and you just kind of like let them choose whatever they touched or whatever that's still in the parameters of the game. You'd still score like 80 points, right? Just, just by random happenstance, you just kind of score points in that game. So the real battle is over like a margin that is not really perceived in the scale of points that you're getting. You're, you're always going to get that first 80 points, uh, and, and someone competent is going to get, like, 120 points, but the battle's really over those last, like, 30, 120 to 150, uh, which is kind of in a two-player game, I suppose. In more-player games, you can get much higher. Yeah, I feel that Castles of Burgundy is generous most of the time, and I like that there's kind of more player interaction or player battle over key tiles and i think that's where the game is fun um, but it, it that kind of takes it outside of a lot of euro games where i feel there's not that much player interaction i don't know i feel like castles of burgundy has, has you think more... castles of burgundy is a is a more interactive game than most yeah really see i kind of agree it's well I definitely agree at two players. I think it becomes yeah, less Yeah, yeah, at two players, for sure. Well, I've played it mostly with you, so... I mean, the reputation of Castles of Burgundy is that it is very little interaction and is kind of what, what people call a multiplayer solitaire game. I totally disagree. I think Takedo's the same way. I think particularly at two players, Takedo is Ooh. a really brutal game. Oh, it's so brutal. <laughs> and then at, like, three and five players, it's, it is kind of its... I mean... It's still brutal at three to five players, but at two, well, yeah. I, specifically three and five players. Those are the most gener- resource-generous player oh, counts. Oh, right, yep. I, I believe. Yeah, right? No, four. Sorry. Three and four players. 
Five players is more restricted because four and five players have the same number of resource spaces. Mm. So four is four players is more generous. But do you think so? Castles of Burgundy is definitely what people would call a point salad game, where you're just kind of yeah. getting points for everything. Do you think that creates a less painful experience? Yes, I definitely do because everything you do is positive. Um, and maybe it's not in comparison to the other player, and that's really where the competitive spirit comes in, and that's why I think it's an interactive game. But the game itself, I would classify as generous. Yeah, and I think that's why point salad games are made. I love them. <laughs> I think they cater towards a particular type of preference Yeah. Uh, that some people pretty much, there are some people who kind of exclusively prefer games like that, I prefer uh, them on occasion, and generally, I, I don't mind them. Uh, but but a lot of people complain about them, and I, I don't think it's necessarily a valid complaint. In other words, it's fine if you if you prefer not to play those games. That's just a preference. But I don't think it's it's a valid complaint to say that it's poor design. No. Because it is catering for a particular type of experience, even if that spirit experience is an illusion. Right. Yeah. Even if the random monkey player, you know, monkey on a typewriter kind of situation is still going to score a bunch of points, uh, that illusion can be valuable and, and cater towards a particular experience. And I don't think that's a bad thing from a design perspective. No. Um, and I think that a lot of these games that I'm calling painful um, or games that are not generous really limit the audience for the game because there are some people who say they don't like games and, and when they say they don't like games they can come at it from different angles one of the, one of those angles is people who don't like competition but they might still enjoy castles of burgundy you know as long as they're not sh they're not seeing it as a competition which i do see it as one but they, they might still play that game or uh, people who who really don't like uh, making decisions where they feel like that decision is a bad decision. Point salad games are awesome. Um, and I feel like I could present that game to, or those kinds of games to people that I know have a hard time making decisions, living with the consequences of those decisions um, and all of that. So those kinds of games I feel I can present to a much wider range of my friends than the very painful Euro games, which I would probably only present to a select few. Yeah, and, and that reminds me of an experience I've had multiple times that I was thinking about the other day. And that is when introducing a game to to, to a non-hobbyist, so someone who's not obsessed like, like I am, I, I'll teach the rules and I'll, I'll try to make sure they have a good understanding of the rules and then when it gets to like their first turn and they're like, what do I do? And I've realized over time that they're not asking me what are the rules allowing me to do. Right. Definitely they're asking not. for strategy advice, which is, but not even strategy advice. They're not asking me what are the strategies. They're asking me how do I avoid shame yeah. in the action I'm about to do? Exactly. That's... How do I not appear to be a fool <laughs> yes. in the action and, and, and I think it comes with the expectation or it comes from an ex a history of playing games where you kind of have false choices, if choices at all, right? The traditional games, the monopolies, the saris, 
whatever, uh, or even like non-choice games like Candyland, which in my mind aren't really, they're just a different category of game or not a game at all, whatever you prefer to call, where you're just doing things, like things just happen and you're part of it. Uh, and then you, if you have that history and you come to a game that has actual choices, it's, I think it can be shocking to some people. Yeah. In, 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 and they don't quite know how to grasp that. And so when they ask, what do I do? They're just like, play the game for Like they actually want you to choose their strategic choice and then they'll go along with that. And what I've discovered is like, I don't want to tell people what to do. Well, you don't. Cause like, cause like if you like told a, a, a game hobbyist like oh you want to do this this thing they would immediately think well this game isn't presenting me with real choices if right. that's the obvious thing to do uh so the kind of solution i've come up with is you know look at get a get a decent grasp you know a quick grasp of the game state and give them like two to three things that you think aren't bad Right. These are valid things. All three of these things are good. But then even sometimes people I'll say, okay, you uh, doing this, doing X, Y or Z all seem like good choices to me. And then I've even had the experience, even when I say that, they're like, what should I do? And in that case, I'll just like uh, do this. Like, I'll just tell them what to do, even though I'm like, well, why would you want to be told what to do? Like the whole point of the game is to make choices. Uh, But They're, they're learning the game, though. Like, I think I think. It is good. But I think it comes from that that history of like understanding board games as largely things that just kind of happen and you are quote unquote playing even though you're you're either making very menial choices or no choices at all. Sure. And to me the 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 key factor of a board game is that there are choices. Sure. But then there's another side of that um, and I guess this segues into our next topic about games you can lose early where even experienced gamers like myself you know i'm not super experienced but i've definitely played more board games than the vast majority of the population if i sit down at a game table where one or two players know the game inside and out i want a little bit of advice (laughs) and if i've never played the game before like i want to know what are three valid strategies or what's something to avoid in making choices early in the game because i don't want i don't want to be in a position where the other player's experience wins them the game before it's even started yeah and i think that's one thing designers can actually design for and i I think it's something that great western trail does very well and that is design that is to have very clear intermediary goals so even if Mm -hmm. people are going in and they don't quite know what to do for the goal of winning the game two hours from now, they can find something and be like, oh, I can accomplish that thing in my next couple of actions over the next 20 minutes. And that can be an accomplishment that I just shoot for and I'm fine with that. And I think uh, having those intermediary goals can be built into the game, can, can help people along, even if it's ultimately you know a, a pretty heavy strategy game. Sure, but then does that remove choices? I think if the intermediary goals are good enough, okay, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily remove choices because then you can have greater nuance in how you accomplish that goal. 
you know how efficiently you accomplish that goal or the implications of that goal that more experienced players can learn and, and, and discover and you uh, you don't necessarily have rote decisions uh, but but I, I certainly agree going back to the the scenario where you know the game really well and the people you're playing with have not played it before so there's an imbalance there I try to tell people that like okay if you're about to do something like catastrophically yeah. bad I'm going to warn you yeah and in game hobbyist people are that's that typically seems like the middle ground that they like but i'm just i've discovered over time that yeah the people who aren't necessarily hobbyists are way more open for you just picking their choices yeah but don't do that because then they never learn like maybe on the first turn sure. why well, <laughs> it devours my very soul i hate it but some on occasion i've had to like yeah just do this thing you'll be fine and then you know, if the game's decent, it, you know, it has positive feedback loops and then they see, oh, I gained a reward from this. And then they're like, oh, I'll do more. I can now see where this type of thing gains me this type of reward. Yeah. And then they learn the game that way. But it's it's usually on the first couple turns of the game where that happens. I think that's fine. Although yeah. I've learned to not do it with Emily because she keeps winning games. Yeah. Why would you do that with Emily? <laughs> Emily, Emily does this all the time. She's always like, what do I do? What do I do? And then you realize, like, halfway through that she really understands the game well. So, and, uh, so I, I she do wins. this. I do this to a very, very small yeah, degree. This, and you guys don't... We've talked about this before, and, the psychological games. And you guys don't notice, okay? But Emily plays the psychological games way more than I do. Well, I figured more. it out now. Okay. Okay, good. Sometimes she does need advice on what to do on the first turn. You can give her that because we've all played the game and she hasn't. But... Not later on. No. Yeah. She's really good at games. <laughs> uh-huh. I remember the first time she played Seven Wonders. Mm-hmm. She had you give her advice on every turn for the first two ages, and then she won. Mm-hmm. You got to watch out. <laughs> you and your siblings. <laughs> but let's talk about games where you can lose early, because I think this is an interesting phenomenon, and... I mentioned to you before when we were prepping Food Chain Magnate, because Splatter Games, I believe they have explicitly said one of their design ethos, ethoses, design rules, is that you have to be able to lose the game on your first turn, which a lot of people really like. I think it's kind of cool, uh, but probably not a good idea for most games. Not if you want a wide audience. Right. And not if you want a lot of inexperienced people playing them. Yeah, and Splatter is is specifically and very deliberately uh, a niche publisher. Yeah, so it's fine. But but when talking about Food Chain Magnet, you didn't recall this as a particularly painful game. Okay, I think, though, that my memories of this game are mostly of the first time we played it, where we got the rules very wrong, and it was a very generous game. Yeah, it we is got not a, a generous wrong. game. We, got, we, 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 <laughs> we thought we could stack managers on managers on managers, and so like we hired all the little junior managers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It did make the game, it, it did make the structure a lot easier. Although I don't think it changed the gameplay experience that much. Oh, I think it did. <laughs> it, but yeah, it also in this game, I don't think I ever made poor early game choices. It's not one that I've ever won, so clearly I made poor choices in comparison to others later on but the early game actions i think were pretty obvious after that first messed up play 
So if I had played it properly the first time, I might have very different feelings. Yeah, because I think there's a bit more nuance here as well in how you design towards the perception of being able to lose versus the reality of it. For instance, I think I think for many Dominion games, you could probably lose in your first first hand, your first two turns, your your yeah. first because because it is very much a positive feedback loop game where your first two choices play into your strategy quite a bit. I think if you're playing a very good opponent, you could probably lose in your first turn. I don't think Dominion feels like you can lose in your first turn until you've played a lot and you have a deep, deep understanding of the game. Yeah, I agree. But, I mean, for any deterministic game, so any game with no randomizing element, you definitely can lose on the first turn of the game against a perfect opponent. Yeah. Or a sufficiently good opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, So for a certain sense, it's just how deep of an understanding of the game can you get like you take a chess game theoretically you can and by what i mean by you is like an infinitely an infinitely smart person can solve chess it is solvable in other words you can determine what is the correct opening well this is a bad analogy because there's a decent chance that chess is solvable to a draw anyways you can determine maybe that there's a losing opening, that there is an opening that will lose the game given sufficient knowledge. But that's not really useful because we aren't infinitely smart and we can't calculate that far on chess, even the best chess players, even the best computer at the moment. That being said, for a designer, it's far more important whether or not you want the perception of having lost the game or not in the beginning rather than like the reality of it, because the reality of it is always determined by the intelligence and strategy of the other players and their ability to see that, like see the the strategic horizon deep enough that they can understand whether or not it's it's won or lost. Yeah, Uh, so I, I think the perception matters a lot more. Yeah, I agree with that. It brings to mind whether or not you losing on the first turn makes the entire game a negative experience, as in you're behind the entire game. I think that's always a negative if you feel that you are behind the entire game and it's not a game that you will play again. Yeah, and and sometimes game designers will try to hide that by making like victory points hidden information, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily always successful. You can have a decent understanding of where you are in the game even if some information like that is hidden yeah and and i suppose the losability of the game on the first turn is somewhat a function but i don't think completely a function of the randomness in the game Uh, what do you mean like the amount of randomness the number of random events or randomizing events or rather the power of the sum of the randomizing events well i think it factors a lot i think it factors a lot i don't know if it's necessarily a function of that no not necessarily i don't think so well it's a function of the uncertainty right so the yeah yeah the strategic uncertainty of and again it goes back to the the abilities of the player anyways all that being said i think i think games where you see that you can lose early and maybe not in your first few plays have a complete understanding of the game those are the games that feel quote painful for me on occasion 
I'm, I'm seeing the box of Stevenson's rocket on the shelf and you haven't yet played that, but I think that's, that's a game where your early decisions, you don't quite realize the implications until you've played a few times, uh, because it's all about setting up for the end game. And that can be a situation where you're like, Oh yeah, those decisions I made at the beginning, I definitely should not have made those decisions. I just didn't realize the implications of them. Uh, so maybe, yeah, I guess it's your ability to grasp the inputs, like the grasp, the implications of everything uh, as you go. Yeah, this is why it's hard to play those kinds of games in a group with varied experience levels in that game. Um, so these games, I think, are great if you have a group and you all learn it together and you all play it together a few times. Um, but it's really hard to bring in new players. Really hard. Definitely. And and I think you have to set it up as like, okay, this is going to be a learning game for you and you got to understand that. And you're going to lose. And you're going to lose. And, and we'll give you advice on the first couple rounds, but you're still going to lose. And after you get that over <laughs> with, you're going to and you're going to have a fun time, but then you're going to have a lot more fun on the next place. Yeah. Uh, which is a bit hur- a, a big hurdle for a lot of people who aren't playing lots of games. Yeah, some uh, people So it's definitely it. it's a valid design choice, but I don't think it's necessarily a good design choice for most games. You, mm-hmm. It's really a niche style of design choice and yeah i'm fine with games that have that that hide that either through randomizing elements or just through other other tricks of the trade to disguise that information you can disguise it by being generous because there is a big perception difference in being behind when you have one point and another player has 10 points and being behind when you have 40 points and the other player has 90 points. I don't know. I feel I feel like I can catch up in that second scenario, hmm. uh, but not so much in the first. Yeah, you can also disguise it, at least for most of the game, by having it be an engine-building game where mm-hmm. your outputs are going to exponentially increase. Yeah. And then, so everything that happens in the first two-thirds of the game is equal or less to in terms of victory point value or immediate victory point value what's happening in the like the last third of the game where all your victory points get cashed in and then at least like your understanding that oh i lost the game 40 minutes ago happens at the very end and then you're almost done uh which which may be a a benefit to engine building games over point salad games which are often like trickle you know mostly trickle uh, 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 points, although most point salad games are engine builders in some sense. Anyways, uh, I think engine builders can can hide that. Yeah, that's another way of hiding it, I think. For the point salad, though, I think my, my point is still valid because if I feel like I can get 20 points in a turn, I'm not necessarily thinking of the comparison that my opponent is doing, who is doing so much better can also do that. I'm just thinking, oh, I can catch up. Even yeah. if I can't. And, and, and that's actually an interesting thing about Dune Imperium that I found was a very fascinating design choice in that it's a game that looks like it's trying to be broadly appealing within the hobby space, uh, not to like the mass market. But it's not, It's it, it doesn't look like it's trying to be niche like Food Chain Magnate. But it's a race to 10 points. It was really tight, and that's it's a race to ten points in which the there are many many avenues to get there. So it it appears generous, 
but except f- with everything except the victory points. Yeah. Well, which which is kind of a bold choice because mm-hmm. like I was at a situation in the middle of the game where I had like three points and Bubba had eight points. Like he was on the verge of winning. Mm-hmm. And I could see that I, I was just very close to cashing in a number of points, like four additional, five additional points. And I was going to do that very soon. But, I mean, I could totally see uh, someone being in that situation and feeling just completely defeated, mm-hmm. which was, an again, a very interesting design choice. I don't know how successful it is. I kind of like it uh, after the first play, but, you know, I'd, I'd certainly like to play that game more. Mm-hmm. Me too. So I think we're we're getting close to the end of our podcast here and wrapping things up. But I know the last question on the list is... Is pain good? Is it a good thing in board games? I think we've answered it a little bit, but what's your conclusion? I think it depends It depends on what we define as pain, whether or not we can answer that question. So I think there are a wide range of valid preferences in board games, and I don't think we can necessarily pin something as good or bad design. However, I think that insofar as board games create choices and valid choices that means they're creating opportunity cost and opportunity cost is really some amount of pain because opportunity cost is about not choosing something that's good but it's inherent to the idea of choice so insofar as games have choices they have some amount of pain you know i put in quotation marks i don't know why i'm doing the air quotes when the vast majority of people who are are only only going to hear this and not have any visual although if you are a patreon supporter you get to watch the podcast recordings live i'll throw that out there and see the cats yeah we got both double cat sighting today two cats anyways insofar as there are choices i think there is pain and therefore yeah it's for any any board game is some amount of pain. I don't think games that deliberately have design decisions built in them or, or mechanisms built in them that are shooting for that are necessarily always good. I think it's it's a choice among many, a valid choice among many valid choices, and it depends on what kind of audience you're going for, what kind of play experience you're going for, what kind of theme you're going for. Mm-hmm. If again, the theme of Agricola is about subsistence farming so it makes sense that it is a non not very generous game where you're you're not getting very many resources uh by total number that makes sense that's why i think caverna kind of fails because i mean yeah they put a little dwarfy fantasy element in there but it dilutes the theme i really don't like caverna in isolation would be a fine game when you have played agricola it just does it's just bad uh, it's it's just not very good. Sorry, I'm thinking about the last time I played Caverna and was thinking, why aren't I playing Agricola? Anyways, if the theme works, and by theme I don't just mean setting, but the idea you want to put across in the game, uh, the the intellectual idea, yeah, I mean that's that's one way you can accomplish that thematic element, and I'm actually really interested in games that tackle more serious themes and more serious subject matter and having really constrained choices can be part of that and having non-generous games resource generous games can be part of that so i i think i have kind of a preference for this sort of thing but i also enjoy 
point salads. So uh, mm-hmm. is pain good? Yeah, I think sometimes and maybe oftentimes for me it is in board games. I like tense games. I like games that kind of beat you up. You know, I'm a big Vlada fan, and his games are intentionally... I mean, he masks it with a lot of humor, but like Galaxy Trucker and Dungeon Lords, you win the game if you have any points at the end, technically. Yeah. Well, I like what you said about preference, and I know your personal preference is kind of more towards these games. Maybe. I don't know. Mine isn't. I love the point salad games. The more generous a game is, I think the, the more I'm inclined to play it the better experience I have with the game. But on the flip side, I really like the like the war games. I like playing Churchill. I like playing um what's the what's the coin the, games. The coin games. Yeah. The theme I think ties into it a lot and and impacts how much I will enjoy a non generous and painful game. Um but I don't want to be a subsistence farmer, so I don't like Agricola. Sure. <laughs> But you want to be a member of the Viet Cong? Well, I, I like to attack things. <laughs> I don't, I don't well, want to be I a think member. The discussion but... <laughs> changes when you get to war games, though. Okay. I, I think by their very nature, they're they're just different right. because they're about destruction and, and about immediate conflict. Like mo- most of the discussion we're we're having is around like resource resources and payments and that sort of thing, which isn't necessarily a big part of war games, although sometimes sure. it can be. Sure. If you're U.S. in uh, Fire in the Lake, yeah, it's about managing how many troops you send out of the country, which, sure, can be can be painful. For you More and... painful to the actual fighters in Vietnam, but, I mean, mm-hmm. as the, like, dictator of the U.S. in that game, yeah, it's, it's a resource management kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. But I like the generous games. I really do. Interesting. And and you're talking specifically more about like resource gener- generosity, not strategic generosity. No, both. You mean I, both? I like the ability to make a lot of different choices that are good choices that will get me things and help me win the game. Cool. Yeah. No. I mean, it's a valid preference. I I think my preferences are pretty flat, honestly. Now that I think about it, I like it. I like games. I like both both styles and everything in between. I think that's everything for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Amber, for coming on the podcast and for coming up with the idea for this podcast. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. It got much more philosophical than normal, but it was fun. I don't know the normal. Yeah, maybe a little more explicit philosophy than normal. Uh, but thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to check out thethoughtfulgamer.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer where you can get access to, among other things, live streams of the podcast to see our little rambunctious cats that were doing things they were not supposed to, like climbing on the game table during this recording. Bad cat. And you can follow me on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, Just go to thethoughtfulgamer.com to get the links to all that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.